right, well, good morning. Yeah, awesome. Good to see you guys. Hey, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here uh, at Salem. I haven't said this in a while, so I'll say it today. If I have not gotten the chance uh, to meet you, I'd love to meet you after service and, and shake your hand and, and get to know your story uh, just a little bit. We're in this series uh, continuing just for this week and next week before we kind of move into Christmas uh, in the series called Witnesses Here, There, uh, and Everywhere. We're going to dive into that in a moment. Um, but uh, before we do, um, I want to show you this picture. This is from yesterday. If you guys remember, uh, if you guys were here this last week, we've been promoting uh, this thing called Evangelism as Relationships. Uh, so yesterday, about 35 of us gathered together uh, to wrestle through this training. This is Shane Stacy, who's a good friend and mentor of mine. And, uh, and so we walked through this time together. It was super fun, engaging, uh, life-giving, and uh, just building confidence in our stories and the story that God has given us uh, to, uh, to share with uh, the people where we live, work, and play. So if you missed out on this, just know that this is something that uh, there'll be more opportunities in the future uh, for you guys uh, to come to. So uh, super awesome time. So hey, this morning, uh, we're actually going to be diving uh, into Acts chapter 6. We're going to summarize chapters 5 and 7, but dive into chapter 6. And we're coming out of the celebration Sunday, okay? Uh, and as we do that, there's so much that was, that was good for us just to verbally process and to celebrate. Uh, and as we transition into the passage this morning, there's some, a few more challenging things uh, for us to kind of look at this morning. And so in order just to prep again our hearts, I just want to just open uh, in a time of prayer. So, Father, Lord, we come before you uh, this morning. And Lord, whatever's going on in our hearts and whatever, um, whatever feels off in the, midst, in the midst of our heart, in the midst of our mind, in the midst of our life, Lord, we surrender that to you uh, this morning. And Lord, I pray that you give us soft hearts and ears to listen um, to the church, about the church that you want to be about, that you want to create, and a church that is united and unified around the person and the works of Jesus, but also in life and mission. And so, Lord, this morning, if there's anything that we need to just to lay at your feet, Lord, we do that so that we can hear uh, your word this morning. Hear me pray. Amen. Hey, how many of you guys um, like Legos or did at one point? Okay, quite a few. All right, so um, you, you may know this. Uh, we have a daughter who's four years old, and, and um, you know, she's always asking to play. And so one of the things that I find is most, uh, most fun for us to, to do together is actually to work with Duplos, which are kind of like really big, uh, really big Legos. And, um, and so for me, this is, it's fun because when I was a kid, I don't think I realized how much I enjoyed this, but my mom told me uh, a while back, she was like, Seth, you would go into your room and play with Legos for hours by yourself. And so uh, getting back into Duplos has kind of brought something out of the out of old Seth. Um, and so what ends up usually happening is that we sit down to build this thing together, and I start building it, and then Eden wants to build on top of it, and I say no. <laughs> so, so it's, it's uh, you know, um, I've gotten, at first it was harder, and then I've become more gracious, so she'll bring like Minnie Mouse and and pluck her on the top of this cool, uh, you know, castle that I'm building. And I'm like, cool, cool. You know, <laughs> and then I take it off and re keep rebuilding. And so, um, and anyways, it's just really this, this, this fun thing for, for um, me to do <laughs> uh, with my daughter. That sounds so weird. Um, and, and yeah, so here's what happens. This is what inevitably happens is that at some point, whether it's within an hour or a day, you know, you look at this and you go, you're kind of proud of this, this masterpiece that you've kind of built. And, and you go, wow, it's really cool, really fun and really neat. And, and, and then Eden comes in and she just like, Psh! 
you know, and just destroys it. Or she will build one, and she'll have a friend come over, and they want to play with Dupos, and what do they do? They destroy it so they can rebuild. And there is this, this simple pain, that, <laughs> as silly as that sounds, there's this little simple pain that kind of goes with that. Because when you build, you work hard to build and create something, right, you don't want to see it torn down. I want you to think about these words uh, from Jesus, right? Jesus said this back, uh, you know, um, earlier in, in, the, in the Gospels, but he says this. He says, I am building my church, and the gates of hell cannot what? Prevail or stand against it, right? And so Jesus is offering us this very, very affirming statement that he is building his church and nobody can tear it down. Right? Not even Satan in all that he's going to do. What we're going to find this morning as we kind of dive into these chapters, we're going, to, we're going to see that even though Satan doesn't understand the full plan of God, what he's going to do is that he's going to take everything that he can to destroy and to diminish the work that God is doing. And, and what you're going to find is that Satan is not mentioned in our passages. Okay? And yet, many people believe that this is a simple and subtle strategy that Satan has been working against the early church in order to create this tension so that they're fighting against each other rather than creating and fulfilling the big picture that God ultimately has for the church, right? And so what Luke is going to do as an author in our, in our text this morning is he's going to lay out that tension, right? He's going to show us that here's, remember, here's what God is up to, and here, though, is what Satan is up to, right? And it's going to be these subtle, simple things where he's really trying to work his way in, okay? So we're actually ending kind of the first part, and the Acts kind of is broken into kind of a bunch of chunks, and really, Acts kind of the first portion ends with chapter 7. So we're going to make it to the end of chapter 7 with communion, um, and, uh, and so, but if you remember, this is how we started in this series way back in many, many weeks ago. We started with Acts 1a, because this is, this is the big plan. This is the big picture, Right? And so Jesus says, you know, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem, and then here's what he's going to do is he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, this is a future tense, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and where? To the ends of the earth. And really, for all practicality, that could say through the rest of time. Right? Because it's not just limited to, you know, to the ancient Near East. It's not just limited to the Mediterranean world. It's not just limited to Rome. It's ultimately going to make its way even all the way around the globe. Right? And so this idea of witness is, is, comes from this word martus right? in, in Greek. And it says this, it, it's really this. It's someone that has seen, uh, experienced, or knows something. Oftentimes it's used in a legal setting. Uh, when you bear witness, really what you're doing is you're sharing your testimony, right? I'm bearing witness to actually share, to show what one has seen, experienced, or knows. And what's, what's so great about this is that this is a promise that was given to the early disciples in Acts 1a. And yet for many of us, what we need to see is that we are still on this Acts 1a journey. It's still unfolding. It's still multiplying. This church is still growing, right? And we, in the exact same way, um, are witnesses to the transforming work of the gospel. Right? We didn't get to see, we don't have the privilege of seeing Jesus in, his, in the beauty of his humanity, and yet we believe and we know the transforming work of the gospel is an effect in working in us and through us in today. And so we are witnesses, ultimately, uh, of, of this gospel. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of cover five through seven, but really we're just going to focus in on just a few verses in chapter six this morning. And what we're going to start with is this, these, these kind of these contrasting problems, these two different problems that are laid out for us. Here we go. In chapter six, verse one. 
It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, okay, I'm just going to stop there for a second. Um, You may remember uh, over these past several weeks, what we kind of looked at um, were this kind of sequence of stories, and each story was kind of like it's given its own little time slot within the chronology of Acts, right? They're very specific times and very specific moments. And as we shift into chapter 6, what Luke does, he says, now in these days. So he creates this much bigger, broader, larger umbrella. And so he's reminding us that there is this, this chronology, but, but it's not always laid out perfect in perfect order. Because as you look through those first chapters, you see the church is growing. And it's not without its struggles, but by and large, it feels like a plane taking off. And it's like this 45-degree angle growth. It just feels like nothing can stop, right? Nothing can stand against it, which is true. But it doesn't mean that the church is all kind of hunky-dory, right? Like there are these big problems that we're going to see within the midst of this time and how it kind of comes out, right? But here's the next, the next piece. And it really introduces like this really good problem. No, go back, sorry. The next piece of this is where he says, you know, the disciples were increasing in number, right? That's a great problem to have. Like when the church is growing, good things, right? That's a good thing. That's always a good thing when the church is growing. And so when we think about this, as we come back, is just we're reminding ourselves of how we started kind of this whole Acts series as we come back to the board, right? And so down here is, this, is the city of Jerusalem, right, in modern-day Israel, right? And it's this tiny little kind of nation-state. It's about the size of a state in the United States, so it's very small. So anytime you can walk from, like, the north to the south in, like, 10 days, you know it's a small country, right? And so, so Israel is over here, and you've got this, this small uh, this city of Jerusalem. And if you remember, kind of how this all started, right, is that way back when, is that when, when Jerusalem was seized and attacked and kind of destroyed and everything, what happens is that, is that all of these Jewish people are kind of pushed out into the world. And so they kind of go out here, they come here, they come here, right, and they keep going. And they're all kind of all throughout this place, all throughout the known world, right? And down here, even in, in uh, kind of northern Africa, uh, you got, actually, I forgot this, this is the island of Crete, right? And then you come all the way over, and way over here somewhere is actually even Rome. And so what's unique about this is that God is utilizing history to his advantage. He's controlling history here. And what he does is that he uses, in Acts chapter 2, in Pentecost, which is one of the three required festivals for the Jewish people. So anybody who had been pushed out into the world, who is an Orthodox or practicing Jew, who lived in these places, would travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, for, for one of three uh, occasions, right? And so at Pentecost is where this happens and is where Acts starts, right? And it's in this space, though they come, right? And here's what's so amazing is that, is that the apostles who are in this upper room, right, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, it shakes the room, but the gift that they're given in the time is that they're this ability to speak a different language. So all of these different people who live in the known world all speak different languages. But yet when they come to Jerusalem, you have these simple farmers and tax collectors who've never been anywhere other than like right here. And yet all of a sudden they know these languages. And so that's what happens is that God uses these languages to convey the gospel in their own language. And so here's the brilliant thing, right? Is that so they all come to Jerusalem, right? They're all here. But while they're here, all in one place, the gospel is presented 
and each of them believe. And the church grows from hundreds to thousands to thousands to thousands. And so while they're in the space, though, right, they're still in Jerusalem, right? It's not just that they believe in the gospel. It's that all of a sudden they belong to something much bigger, right? They belong to something much bigger. And here's what's happening here is that God's plan has always been from the get-go is that his plan has always been to send people. This happened the first service to you. Unbelievable, his new markers, right? God intended to send people back with the gospel to where they live and to where they work and to where they play. So all across the world, this is the way he's going to expand and grow the church. And part of how that happens is that, um, is that later on at the end of Acts chapter 7 is this man named Stephen who's the very first martyr. And once he's, once he's actually killed, and we'll see this today, once he's killed, it's going to force everybody back out to where they came from, right? They all kind of go back to where they came from. And so it's going to catalyze this. But it's always been God's plan to take the gospel, to start here, and then to go where? Here, and then there, and then everywhere else. It's always been the plan, right? And the way he can do that, or part of the way this works, is because, if you remember from Acts chapter 2, part of what he's done is that by, by giving us Jesus, now we are no longer reliant on the temple for worship, because each and every person is what? Is the new temple, Right? So you have all of these people, everywhere they go, just in their very being, by existing, they are this new temple. And so God is taking his worship and his temple and his movement out into the whole world. And that's always been God's plan. It's a very, very sophisticated and brilliant plan on behalf of God and what he's ultimately doing. But in the midst of this, here's what we need to know. For our context this morning is that this is where we are. We're still here. It ha- the gospel has not gone there or everywhere yet, okay? The plan of God, but we're still here. And the church is growing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And there's a couple of things that arise. One, the first thing is that the larger something becomes, the more organization it needs, right? And so there's a leadership vacuum where they have to fill and figure out how they're going to do ministry differently to adapt so they can actually meet needs. That's one problem, and we'll come back to that later. But really, the bigger problem that I want you to be aware of is that Satan enters into the story in a big and powerful way. Because Satan doesn't know the full plan of God. He's not omniscient. He falls short in the omniscient category, just like every one of us. And he's limited in his power, but here's what he does know. He knows that thousands upon thousands of people just came to know Christ right here. And that's not something that he likes. He hates it. And so what is he going to do? He's going to do every single thing that he can to, to create sideways energy here so that this never happens. Or whatever it is that God is doing, that, that never happens. See, Satan hates the idea even of God's work in action. He hates even more the fact that you and I would say, I want to participate in that plan. Because let's be honest, it's one thing to know that God is up to something big, and it's another thing to participate in that big plan, right? So from the get-go, right, here's what I want you to know. Just remember, there's this big picture at play here, and Satan's going to enter in in these very small ways in order to create this sideways energy or to create distraction and disruption or anything he can do to, to minimize and limit God's big plan. Does that make sense? Okay. So chapter four, here's how this works, right? Chapter four, we started with this big idea of unity. So all these thousands of people come to know Christ and they are united together 
um, around the person and the works of Jesus unequivocally. They say, Jesus is the guy, and we all believe in him, and they're united, and it's powerful. So what does Satan do? He thinks, how do I disrupt this from the outside? So he starts with this external persecution, and he raises up all of these people on this crowd, and they come against Peter and John and the other disciples. Do you remember this? Okay, so they're kind of this crushing weight on the disciples, and yet thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit in this moment, Peter and John, they stand tall, and they say, we will not be beaten by this, right? And they refuse to fall to the persecution of the world. So Satan has another strategy. He goes, okay, bummer, that didn't work. That was loud. That, would, that didn't work. And so what he does, he goes, I'm going to move to this internal side. And so what does he do? He actually, he's sparking this idea of selfish, selfishness and hypocrisy. And there's this, this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And you remember, everybody is selling their belongings and they're giving it to the apostles so that the apostles can what? Distribute it to anybody who has needs. So Ananias and Sapphira, they think, great, let's get on board with this big plan. Let's be a part of this. So they sell some stuff. They bring money. But in secret, here's what they do. They think, okay, gosh, we made X amount of dollars. We're going to keep this portion for ourselves. And they withhold it. But worse, they lie about it, right? And so God enters in, and he brings a really swift and powerful justice, and they actually, they actually die. And it's a very strange type of a thing. And yet, I wonder if this is God's way of saying, we're not going to let any, any leaven leaven the whole lump kind of a thing. Like, we don't want Satan entering into this, and so he's protecting the big picture at play. And so Satan, okay, that didn't work. So now what does Satan do? We go into chapter 6, and here's Satan's strategy, is he's going to continue with this small and secrecy thing. It's, it's, it's going to be about this what's happening in private, but it's not between two people. Satan's going to stir up in the body of believers the secret complaint, the secret grumbling. And this is what he's going to use to try and disrupt the people from entertaining the idea of a really big, really big plan that God is ultimately up to. Okay? So here's what it says. The next part of this verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, um, he goes on, right? So the, the, the disciples, they're increasing in number. This is a very, very good problem. And yet then we're introduced to a contrasting problem. And it says, in a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so here's what's happening, right? In, in first century Judaism, there was a once a week distribution of food and clothing, which by the way, how amazing would that be if like that's what we were, you know? Like if that's what any church was, you're like, hey, you're that church who goes and gives clothes and food every single week. Like, that's a powerful thing to think about, right? And this was the pattern of the early church, is that they would go and do this and give to people, right? And it's a very generous thing, because this is what the church is designed to be. It's designed to be generous and selfless, not selfish, right? And so it makes total sense. And yet, in the midst of this, they identify a very real need. And as a group of people, these sweet wonderful widows who have people who don't have people to care for them are being neglected and so they've they've introduced a very real need and yet what we're going to find is that satan is going to use a real need to exploit the wrong way to solve it 
right? At least initially, okay? Now, where does this all start? How does this happen? Okay, so it says that the complaint arose from these people called the Hellenists. Hellenists are are Greek-speaking Jews, okay? And so here's what they are. Greek-speaking Jews are primarily people who've come in, they've come from all around the world. And here's why. Because remember, when they've been pushed out many, 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 many years ago, they've been pushed out into the world, they've had to learn and adapt to an entirely new culture. And as a part of that, uh, as a result of Alexander the Great's conquests of the known world, Koine Greek was the, was the common language for travel and dissemination of, of language and things throughout the known world, right? And so these people are people who live not in Jerusalem, but they've been steeped in Greek culture. This is who they are. And yet then you have people down here, right? These people, they've been steeped in what culture? Hebrew. So what happens is that you're going to have two different groups of people who see the world very differently. And here's what's key. This is so fundamental. And we'll just wrestle with this. They're both Jews. Ethnically, they are exactly the same. They're both Jews. And yet they're both Christians. Both groups would say unequivocally, Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, it's in his person and in his works alone, by grace through faith, right? All of that is good, and yet what Satan's going to do is that he's going to take this real problem that exists, and he's going to use their cultural differences to clash, so that way they never go do this. Do you get that? That's what he's doing. That's what he's about in this moment. And what I want you to know is that Jesus is not the conflict here. Jesus is not even remotely considered in this. Satan is using using the differences rather than the things that unite us. He's focusing on the differences to create disunity. And here's what's interesting. This word complaint um, in in the Greek is the word... um, uh, ganguzmas, which is kind of a fun word to say, ganguzmas, right? Say that, ganguzmas. That's kind of fun, right? Some of you are like, who cares? Okay, hey, here's the deal. Ganguzmas means murmuring or grumbling. It's murmuring or grumbling. Uh, let me ask you a question. Where else have you heard that in the Bible? Do you remember another time? The Exodus, right? Yeah. By the way, I love our our group participation. This is awesome, right? So what happens, right, is that during a time in the Old Testament history, right, is that during a time of famine, right, everyone goes down because Egypt has food. And through the blessing of this guy named Joseph that God uses, they establish themselves in Egypt. But over time, as they continue to multiply in number, they become a threat. And so what happens is that, is that the pharaoh, the new pharaoh, says, to slavery you go, right? And it's, it's going to become the greatest motif for redemption in the entire Old Testament that points us to Jesus. Because here are these people, they end up in slavery, and what God does is that, what does he do? He removes them from slavery. He's going to bring them to this mountain, right, uh, where they receive the law. And, and it's out this time in the wilderness right? They have this wilderness experience where they're wandering and going. And, and this is when we, we might call them hangry people, right? Hangry means that you're hungry and angry, which makes total sense. And so there's these people who are moaning and murmuring and grumbling along the way, right? And here's the deal. Here's what they say. They say, this is worse off than when we were here. They say, this was better, this was better for us than right now in the wilderness. And here's the truth, for a time, they're right. It was maybe better here, except for one thing, they forgot the big picture, because where's God taking them? 
to the promised land, a land that is flowing or overflowing with milk and honey. And so there's this groaning and murmuring and grumbling and complaining that's happening because they're missing the big picture. They forget where they're going, and they only want to go back to where they came from. And there's this big, grand plan that God ultimately is laying out for his people, right? And as I think about even just in today's context, in today's world, we've just come out of a pandemic, right? Like, no one wants to talk about that, right? Like, I found a mask in my Jeep the other day, and like, I was like, ew, gross, you know, let's get rid of that, you know? And so no one really wants to talk about it. And yet, here's what I would say, is because we look at that time and we go, gosh, things were way better before, and for a time, we were right. And let's just lay it as it is. Let's speak it as it is. COVID was a lot of complaining. COVID was a lot of grumbling. It was a lot of all of that. And yet, here's what I would say in today's world, as we're kind of post that, as what we're seeing and experiencing in the relationships that we're seeing uh, outside the walls of this church, is that more than ever, people in this world want answers. More than ever. More than ever, people want to know. They're seeking and they're searching, right? And so it's like God has given the platform. And so we're reminded that there's a bigger picture. We don't know what God is doing exactly, but we know he's up to something, right? And it's this very, very big thing. The difference here in this context in chapter 6 is that the word for grumbling is actually something that happens in secret, it's, it's this idea of it's behind closed doors, right? And it's this idea, it's, not, it's secret displeasure, it's not openly avowed. And the reality is this is so easy for us to do because this is humanity. This is part of how we operate. It's so easy for us to go here, right? Uh, and this just speaks out of our heart in the sinfulness of our heart. And we gravitate to people who share common affinity with us and we grumble together. And the reality is, is that when we're doing it, it feels harmless, but it's not because Satan uses it, because it's a foothold for Satan. Guys, let me just say this. If it were in private, then nobody would know. You know, I, I love this. So you're gonna, you guys are going to think this is a really gross thing, and that's okay, but, but uh, you know, youth, used to be in youth ministry, and I'm a dad, and I'm a guy, so it just makes sense to me, right? In the text, it says a complaint arose, and it makes me think of like a moment when you're in a room, and somebody passes gas, and it's like, it's like it rising, <laughs> and you're like, okay, Nobody's talking about this, but I know that it's here, <laughs> you know? Like, where did, where did this come from? Like, this is, this is gross. The reality is, with the complaining, it's always going to come out somewhere, right? I know that sounds weird again, right? Now, every time you think of that, it's going to be complaining. No, right? But the idea is that it is. It's always going to come out somewhere. It's a sideways energy, right? And people know, and we'll find out. And when you think about in English, complaining is like this idea of the expression or the expressing of dissatisfaction. Guys, dissatisfaction is normal, right? Why? Dissatisfaction is normal because we will always have people in our church that have uh, steeped in this culture versus this culture. Whether it's like a Hellenistic versus Hebrew or whatever it is, we always will have people who see differently. And that's okay, that's absolutely okay. In fact, it's good because it can sharpen us. Conflict can sharpen us. We'll talk about that in a second. But here's the reality is that when you think about complaining, here's the, here's the good news is that somewhere hidden beneath all of the mess and, and the grumbling of complaining, here's the good news. Here's the silver lining is that what we're acknowledging is that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's a good thing, because we know that the works of Jesus, as he started and in entering into the world, we go, yep, it's not done yet. There's more work to be done before, before the next chapter, right? And so we acknowledge that. But here's the, here's the reality. If we're honest with ourselves, when we complain, you and I probably both know this, it's, it's less about God's kingdom and more about my kingdom, 
It's more about what I want than what God wants. And so if we were to rename the idea of complaining, we would probably rename it not just an expression of dissatisfaction. We'd say it's the expression of selfish dissatisfaction because it's concerned about who? Me. And we all do this, right? Right? We all do this. Uh, and I think that when we do this in life, um, I would hope to think that because of the Holy Spirit and the way that he works in our lives, is that every time complaining comes out of our mouth, when we do this, I hope that we, that we realize and know that it's sticky, it's icky, and it's wrong. And yet we still do it. We still do it, but we know that it's wrong. And in the way it's coming out, and here's part of what happens when this, with the stickiness, is that complaining begets what? More complaining. Because here's why. Because what you're doing is that when it comes out of that deep, dark place in your heart where it's concerned about what you want in the world, right? When you do that and you complain and you share that with somebody else, guess what happens? It also then touches to the deep, dark, icky places of their heart. And what do they do? They start to what? Complain, right? And it doesn't matter if it's the same thing or not. Because they might go, man, that's exactly the way that I feel. Blah, 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 blah. They might say, wow, it's this, that's similar to the way that I feel, but then it goes. And they might be someone who's like, ha, I, I don't even care about that, but since we're complaining, here we go. Because that's who we are. That's humanity, right? It's so easy for us to go to that place. So if it's not the same thing, it's connected to it or something totally different, and it actually grows, right? And, and this is something that Satan can use in really big and powerful ways. As I read this this week, this, this, kind, of, this kind of blows my mind a little bit, but just, just wrestle with this. I was reading about this church um, who many years ago um, went through a big church split, and it's this really messy, massive church split, okay? And here's what happened. So um, in, in the chaos, each side filed a lawsuit against the other, <laughs> which is also really not good. So let's not do that, okay? So there's this lawsuit that happens. And so what happens is it goes to the court and the judge says, guys, this is, this is not in my alley. So what does he do? He hands it back to the denomination and they create this entire massive church council. And in this church council, they start to weigh out the stories and they start to get all of the input. And I kid you not, this is how it started. An entire massive church split started with this one conflict when, when, an, uh, when an adult sat next to a kid at a potluck and was upset that the kid got a larger piece of ham than he did. And can we just like, just, I mean, like it's kind of, I mean, you go, wow, that's just painful. And yet if we were just to say, gosh, okay, this, this is the pettiness of humanity. This is part of what it means to be human, that none of us are beyond that type of pettiness, that we would make that big of a deal out of something like that. And guys, here's one thing, like the tiniest of things can fracture unity. The moment that we shift off of the essentials of Jesus and his way of life and his mission is the moment that, that Satan can enter in, right? Because he's going to concern ourselves, make us concern ourselves with the things that aren't the big picture, because he wants to, to eliminate and, and to dissipate all of what God wants to do in the big reality scope and scheme of life into the world, Right? And that's a powerful thing. And by the, way, by the way, guys, this is in direct contrast to the gospel, right? How many times do you see Jesus complain in the gospels? Right? Silence. None. Does he have questions? Sure. Does he have a doubt? Absolutely. Does he complain? Never. Not when his disciples are bickering, not when he's hungry, not when he's tired, and not when he's on the cross. 
Never at any time does Jesus complain. And so what we're finding here in this text, right, what we're finding is that they're, they're identifying a very real need. Is the distribution among, amongst widows a real need? Absolutely. Is complaining a legitimate problem or legitimate method? No. So they've identified a legitimate problem, but through an illegitimate means, right? And that's the reality when we think about complaining. Guys, if you're looking for a perfect church, you should start by visiting another church because we're not going to fulfill that. Here's the bad news, though. Every church you go to is going to fall short, right? You're going to be in constant loop mode, right? And then 10 years later, you come back here and go, ah, they're still not perfect, right? This is the way it is. No church is perfect because we're filled with imperfect people, broken people. You won't find it here. You won't find it in the New Testament, right? Because we all have people who are steeped in Hellenist culture versus Hebrew culture, right? And here's the reality is that conflict, guys, conflict can be very, very good because conflict can actually help us reveal spots that are blind to us. Conflict can actually sharpen individuals and sharpen a community to look more and more like Jesus. So conflict isn't the problem. Conflict can be very very, very good, but, but complaining has no place. And so let me just say this. If there's complaining in your life, get rid of it. There's no room in your life for complaining. And let's say it in the church. If there's complaining in the church, get rid of it because there's no room for it here either because it keeps us from doing this. And I'm not okay with that and we're not okay with that. Complaining has no place in our lives. Conflict shouldn't limit growth, conflict should encourage growth, right? Conflict, guys, let me just say this. If it's not helping us grow, then it's not helpful. It's a simple way to think about this, okay? So complaining, if you hear it, get rid of it. But here's what happens in this text as we move on, right? What's the response? Verse, verse 2, it says, And the twelve summon the full number of the disciples, and here's what they say. They propose. This is what we're going to say. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. When you hear that, does that sound elitist to you? It kind of does, doesn't it? Um, I share this this first uh, service um, and a lot of people resonated with this. So when, I'm a, when I go out golfing, and if I end up golfing with somebody new that I don't know, that's like a non-Christian, right? If I'm like just on the course and somebody joins, usually within a hole or two, I say, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? You know, kind of gets another story. Usually about hole 16, they ask me the same thing, <laughs> you know? And then it's in that moment where you have to kind of scratch your chin and you say, what do I say? Because I'm a pastor. And that's, that's not a word that many people are used to right? And so I usually will say, well, you know, I work at a church, and sometimes, depending on the context, I'll say, I'm a pastor, and here's what I do. And then here's what I usually get. I am so sorry. <laughs> like, can, I, can you please, like, I have been swearing this whole time. I am so sorry if I offended you. And, I, <laughs> and can we just, can this in humility and vulnerability in this moment, can I tell you, guys, I understand and acknowledge my sin. I am no better than any person. Zero. And so when I read this, this is not elitism. This is not a matter of credentials, people. This is the reason. I, is I am not on this stage because I have a master of divinity. That's not why I'm here. It's not a matter of credentials. It's a matter of calling. And the same thing is true for you. 
That in some sense, some callings are more general and some are more specific. It doesn't change the fact that it's a matter of calling and not credentials. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, this is what God has called us to do. We can't not do that. We can't not do that. And so what we have to do is do what we need to do, and others need to be able to do what God is calling them to do. So that together we can do what? This. The big picture. That's the way that the church is ultimately designed. And the reality is that as the community grows, it becomes more complex, and it needs to restructure so that it can meet fresh needs. And this is what they do is they end up choosing these qualified people to help. If you guys have been around for a while, you've maybe heard me say this. I like to use the image of a hand up and a hand down. And a hand up is this. A hand up is is me reaching out to somebody who is further along in their faith or been where I am at, and so I can grab their hand and say, will you help me follow Jesus in in better ways? And so there's this idea of being transformed and shaped back into the image of truth, right, and through the study of God's word, but also through the practical living out of God's word daily, and I need people to do that. And yet at the same time, at some point, I put my hand down and I say, somebody else grab my hand. Because I will now teach you how to follow Jesus. And that's the picture of disciple making. But in practical terms, in terms of what the church is doing, here's the reality. There should always be somebody behind you to fill your shoes. Always. Whether you're talking about teaching people to follow Jesus or meeting needs in the church. Somebody comes behind to fill the shoes. I was listening to this the other day, and, and this is off the top of my head. Um, as, as baby boomer volunteers are entering into a new season of life, what we're finding is that less and less people are filling those shoes because we've been riding on the coast of their volunteerism. We need people to fill the shoes so that we can continue to meet needs. And here's what they do. Verse Verse 3, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty or to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Right? Guys, here's the deal. You guys know this. I know it. There's a, there's a whole host of needs in the world. Not every, every church, like our church, we can't meet every need. We can't. Of the needs that we can meet or that God calls us to meet, I can't meet all of those needs. And so if we're going to meet needs, here's what I need. I need you. God needs you to be able to do what we then together can accomplish for the sake of the kingdom Right? And to them, to the people, right? these thousands of people that go, that makes total sense. And so what do they do? They choose seven. Because here's what I want you to know. Growth doesn't happen by accident. Growth happens through generosity. Growth starts with this generosity. And here's where it's all aiming at. Guys, look at verse 7. I love this. Luke sets this aside. It's like its own little paragraph in my Bible. So you got the first six verses and you got verse 7. It's like Luke is saying, here's where we're going. This is the hope. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. The very people who were against them just three chapters ago are now on the same team. How crazy is that? Because this is, what's the verbiage here? Increasing, multiplying, greatly. Guys, guys, 
It's talking about bigness. Here's the thing, though. It's not saying bigger is better. What it's saying is that God wants to grow his kingdom. That's what it's saying. God wants to grow his kingdom, and it starts with unity and generosity. Because unity says, in light of all of our differences and everything that would separate us has a difference, whether it's Hellenist culture or Hebrew culture or this race or that race or this or that or whatever it is, we say the unity is that it's about the essentials, it's about Jesus Christ and his person and his works and his mission alone. And nothing that Satan will ever do can disrupt us from that. You see, it's no amount of persecution, if persecution happens, that we would be a church to stand tall and say, we're not going to bend. And if selfishness and hypocrisy enters in, we say, that's not who we are. And if he enters in and he brings this collective complaining that continues to grow, we say, man, that's not Jesus. And that's not the mission that he's called us to. That's sideways energy. It's about unity and generosity. And so let me ask you guys this. I want to end with these things. This is my challenge to you. Do not miss the big picture. Don't miss the big picture. Guys, the big picture says that God is up to something really big. And the moment that you take your mind off of that is the moment where Satan's going to get you in the small things. And he's going to get us in the small things. And so the first thing is this. Remember that you believe in a generous gospel. As this whole thing started, the church started with something that is unconditional and extravagant, that God, in all of his, the richness of his beauty, said, I'm going to send my son to die for a group of people in the midst of the rebellion. When they don't deserve it, no matter what they do, I'll do it for them. That's generosity. But next, also know that when you believe the generous gospel, remember that you belong to a generous gospel community. So when you find people in life and in the church and something is just off between you or something, can I ask you to be generous with the gospel? And if you hear complaining, stop it. Put an end to it because we want to be generous with the gospel. We are a generous community who wants to love on each other and care for each other. But it's more than that too. And I want to plug, plug for these two things because, again, if we're going to meet people's needs, what we need is you. There's like this 80-20 rule, right, that says that 80% of the work in a church is done by 20% of the people. Let's not be that church. Let's not do that. And here's another thing, that 20-80 rule, that's the same thing with giving, is that 20% of the people give 80% of the church's income. I want to ask you, wherever you're at in your story, whether it's about investing, but also with giving to the church, here's what I want you to keep in mind, and would you pray over this? Would you be generous? Because at the end of the year, in December, we're always waiting for that that Nike swoosh where our finances come back in, and we hope that it's going to go back into the black. And so we start talking about it in December. I want to start talking about it right now. I want to ask you to be generous so that when December comes, we're not looking over our shoulder, but we're looking forward and saying, what is God going to do for us together? And the last thing is this. Bring the generous gospel with us to other people. That's the big plan. That's the big picture. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, as we finish our time this morning, as we finish with a song and communion, 
Lord, I pray that you'd be stirring in our hearts. If there is anything that Satan is doing, anything that Satan is working, if there's any grumbling or complaining, if there is if there's any sideways energy, if there's anything that's sinful that's holding me down this morning, I pray that we would take ourselves to the cross and at the knees and be reminded of your generous good news, that this is who you are, that you would send your son to die for us, and that Jesus, in full volition, says, I love you and I call you my brothers. And so, Lord, would you just bring grace, this lavish, this lavish, extravagant, unmerited favor over us this morning. Remind us of who we are in light of who Jesus was and what he did for us. And, Lord, that generosity, may that grace wash over us and may it be stirring inside of us a generosity to the world. And so, Lord, would you make us a people who see the big picture? In your name we pray, amen. As we take communion uh, this morning, I just wanted to set this up, set up this time for you um, just a little differently with a guy named Stephen because Stephen is the final character in chapter seven in Acts. You know, that first seven chapters is before everyone's scattered back out into the world. And Luke gives us this very beautiful portrait of a man named Stephen who was so ingrained into the gospel of Jesus Christ that he lived his final moments exactly the way that Jesus did. And while he's not Jesus, he did. <laughs> Give us an example to follow that it's not just about the truth that we believe, it's also the life that we live in response. You see, Stephen was a man who was full of grace and power. And that grace is unmerited favor of God that he washes over all of his people who are broken. And that power means that he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a power uh, that he himself just pulled himself up by his bootstraps. But, but as Stephen is brought before the council, right, they, 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 they stir up all of this false witness against him. And they say that he's a blasphemous man and that he's doing all these things, all of which is untrue. Does it remind you of Jesus? They take him before the ruling authorities of their day. And the, this guy in charge says, Stephen, tell me, is this so? And Stephen, just like Jesus, when he's asked if he's the king of the Jews, Stephen says, let me tell you about Jesus. And he goes on this, this rampant, this, this, this huge, massive thing from Abraham all the way to Jesus and says, this is where it's at. This is the guy. It's not about me. It's about him and everything that he accomplished. And now it's in your hands. And it's this beautiful response that Stephen gives, this robust speech. And here's how the story ends in verse 54 of chapter 7. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How crazy beautiful is that? And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Like they plugged them and they rushed at him. And then they cast him out of the city just like Jesus. But here they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, and get this, this is Jesus' words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling to his knees, he cries out with a loud voice. And this is gospel generosity. This is a guy who knew what he had been given so that in the midst of stoning and being killed, here's what he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's generous gospel.